welcome back to the Non-Accident Novel Review. This is episode 7, and today we will discuss and read chapter 7. This chapter could most likely be titled Friendship. In it, we see Connor Dempsey and his friend Burke fishing in Pennypack Park, their Saturday tradition. This is a somewhat bittersweet scene, as they will both be off to college shortly. Though they are staying in Philadelphia, Burke will be downtown at Temple University, and Dempsey will be staying home in Holmesburg, going to community college. Change is exciting and frightening. In a sense, it's apparent that this fishing tradition will end. Friends will be inching towards adulthood and independence, exemplified at least in Burke by beginning to grow his hair out and emulating his heroes from the classic rock era. We go back into the history of their friendships, their first meeting at St. Jerome Elementary School, and uh, concluding with them frustratingly having no luck in catching fish, catfish rather, that they can clearly see in the water. Burke concludes, they won't eat it, they never will. And they felt the hook before, and they don't want to feel it again. This spiritually then leads us back to Thomas Holmes his experience as a soldier with the Irish Rebellion, his resistance to this constant bloodshed, desire for a different path, and he and his wife Sarah's discovery of an answer. A group of friends, pious in nature, but also very welcoming. In the Thomas Holmes segment, the seed is planted for his eventual role as surveyor of Philadelphia. While researching, I found it interesting that he considered Northeast Philadelphia and the area where I grew up as the central location of the city. However, the advantages of the dual rivers, the Delaware, and the Schuylkill ultimately prevailed as the more logical location for what is now Center City downtown. I imagine Thomas Holm walking the same Pennypack Park woods as Connor Dempsey and Burke, the same woods I walked in in my life. This idea is more articulated in future chapters, but my intention was to continue my circular portrayal of time. The modern characters are doing something fairly mundane, while there is an enormity occurring below the surface as well, like the fish swimming in the water, sometimes seen and realized, sometimes invisible, obvious somewhere, but not within our sight or understanding. Both characters understand this is the end of a former way of life, but neither don't know how to express it or are scared of actually revealing it. If it is ignored, perhaps it doesn't exist. However, like the catfish, it's eventually seen. Characters try their best to catch it, but they can't. Hook has been felt too many times then there's no reward, no moment of victory. Holm, his wife Sarah, and other members of the Society of Friends are more blatant and resolute in their pursuits. The direction is obvious because they have experienced what they do not want of life. They do not want death, endless conflict, religion contorted for the benefits of a group of people. The world in home in the society of friends' eyes, is irreparably flawed. So the best alternative is to break from it, find a place where they can start again, eventually a new world.
Inspiration. There are elements in this chapter that certainly blend with my own life. Yes, I went to St. Jerome Elementary School and would fin fish in the uh, petty pet. Uh, there was even a time when we encountered a handful of catfish swimming in this pocket of the creek. Uh, they were trapped. We could clearly see them, but still they wouldn't come close to the bait. Probably like most, uh, there were a few mean teachers or people in school growing up. The sister mentioned in the chapter was notoriously mean, uh, if not cruel. Uh, when I think about religion and institutions on a whole, she personifies how something with a very well-meaning beginning, such as a group of people just wanting to live morally, and school as a place to just help people build uh, skills and you know, thinking ability, can be contorted into this overbearing, capricious entity. Wielding power, intimidating, just because it can. In this chapter, I also establish the ties that these characters have to their fathers. Burke's relationship with his father is established almost like idolatry. He loves his father and wants to be like him in many respects. Dempsey's father is not yet mentioned, but will have a prominent role in the next chapter. Holmes' father is gone, but Colonel Sands fulfills that role for him. Holmes has animosity towards Sands, but can't help but also be influenced by Sands' piercingly sharp desire to mold Ireland and perhaps the world closer to his ideal image. I wanted to further that he will not fail within the context of pleasing one's father, or at least a son's personality and desires being a product of the male in his life. Our idea of failure and success being shaped, if not defined, by those who have raised us, those from which we're born. Craft and Structure With the He Will Not Fail theme, I found it was a simple but important element to emphasize the importance of friendship within that pursuit of success. As a young man just graduating high school, it seemed that having strong friendships and being loyal to other people was more important than anything else. It is a time of finding out who you are, having as much fun as possible, and sometimes even getting into trouble. For Thomas Holm and the Quakers, it made sense just to focus on friendship as well. These people saw nothing but war and you know, needing friends almost out of survival. I tried to portray friendship in the simple way, fishing on a Saturday afternoon, and friendship in the more complex way of religion, wanting to establish a new, different society. In this chapter, I also try to sprinkle motifs of other chapters. Eusebius is St. Jerome, so as image is mentioned. Conrad Dempsey and his friends are all meant to be Irish as well, establishing that connection with Patricius and the description of Ireland. Uh, from previous chapters. Hopefully, there's a sense of narrative momentum, but also the stasis as the writing and characters are in the past, present, and looking to the future all at once. Now, on to Chapter 7 of Non-Exodus. Chapter 7. 
Dempsey walked down the clearing of Pennypack Park and along the bike path that ran parallel to the creek. The water was only about knee-deep, but plenty of people still swam in it. He was carrying his waders, tackle box, and fishing rod, and on his way to meet Burke at the spot with the swinging rope by the small bridge. They had named the location Heaven, and it was the frequent spot for keg parties in the woods in high school, and the soon-to-follow police raids. Those times were certainly fun, but it was lazy afternoons like this one that Dempsey cherished. He was anything but an adequate fisherman, but he enjoyed the prospect of just casting his line and seeing if anything would bite. He also liked the sensation of standing in the cool water in his waders, watching the creek flow down over tiny stones with the sun reflecting above. Dempsey and Burke had a tradition of Saturday fishing in the creek for nearly two years, and though they both were staying in Philadelphia for college, Dempsey felt like this would be one of the last times they would fish together. They had lived only two blocks from one another their whole lives, went to St. Jerome's and Father Judge, played on Crispin baseball, and even had their first beer together, and now they would be apart. Burke was going to live in the dorms at Temple University, and Dempsey would stay at home and go to community college for his associates, and then study nursing, hopefully at Temple as well. It was more than a shared proximity that made them friends, at least to Dempsey. It was that first sense of brotherhood, that the world was not a hostile concept, but a place of discovery and fidelity. Dempsey was seven and in the first grade at St. Jerome's Elementary School. The school consisted of two identical three-story buildings with a gap in between for a black stop used for traffic and recess, and the church was situated in front of the two buildings with an adjacent parish green and rectory. The church contained a large oil painting on the altar of St. Jerome, an elderly bald man with a long gray beard looking up and in the distance as if God was hovering above and ready to inspire his hand which held a quill next to the skull on his desk to write on the papyrus skull in front of him, either new words on the doctrine of the early Catholic Church or the translation of the scripture from Greek into Latin, and which was to be known as the Vulgate while a lion slept peacefully at his feet. Dempsey's mother drove him down Holm Avenue in the family Astro van, he with his Spider-Man lunchbox and matching school bag, baby blue collared uniform and his coke bottle glasses and curled blonde hair slicked and combed to the side what with a pound of la looks gel staring out the window as they arrived to school for the first time dempsey looked out to see the other children walking with their mothers to the school entrance and then stopping as they reached the front steps to let out a fantastic cry and run into their mother's arms sobbing and not wanting to let go he feared he would do the same as he walked with his mother but even after his mother gave him a kiss and told him she loved him, no tears came, and he walked right into class. As he sat down in his seat in Miss Yonley's classroom, he realized that this would be it. There would be no more days where he would play with his action figures all day or lounge on the couch and watch Nickelodeon while at his grandmother's house and wait for her to make vanilla popsicles or tell him about her days of watching the Phillies at Connie Mack Stadium. He was now a big kid in school, and before he knew it, there was a notebook in front of him, and he had to trace upper and lowercase a's. After writing, they gathered in a circle on the rug, and Miss Yonley read them a Dr. Seuss book. Dempsey could not help but drift off and start looking at the girl who sat across from him. She had golden pigtails, radiant green eyes, and the sweetest smile. Without realizing it, he had been staring at this girl, Lauren, and she soon raised her hand and told the teacher, Connor is looking at me, 
and he quickly drew his eyes to the ground. After snack time, Dempsey went with the other boys to the bathroom. The urinals reached the floor, and Dempsey feared that he would urinate on his new dress shoes. After that fear subsided, he washed his hands and ran with the other boys down the hallway. Nearly to Miss Yonley's room, a short, old, black-haired woman emerged from the corridor and stopped him. Her skin was dry, wrinkled, and a shade of umber, and she wore thick, yellow-tinted, octagonal-shaped glasses, and she had on a gray blazer and matching skirt. Her lips pursed back and forth between snarl and grimace, and her nostrils flared and exhaled heavily. Don't you know you can't run in the hallway? She spoke in a venomous twinge. You could hurt yourself or others. I should call your mother. Dempsey stood, trembling and unable to produce the sound. Get to class and don't let me catch you running again. When it was finally time for lunch, Dempsey sat down beside a brown-haired boy eating a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and a Capri Sun. That was Sister Fischetti that yelled at you, the boy said while smacking his peanut butter-filled lips. She is the meanest person in the world. My two brothers would always get in trouble with her. My one brother gave her the finger one time. They're a lot older than me. What's the finger? I don't know. It's bad, though. My name is Vince. I'm Connor. Want to be friends? Sure. Dempsey sat by the edge of the creek, daydreaming into the pennypack water until Burke arrived. Burke had grown his hair to the nearest centimeter of acceptability a judge, and now, since graduating, he was content to keep growing it for the foreseeable future. His hair would one day match his idols of classic rock, Mick Jagger, Jimmy Page, Jim Morrison, and so on. He even wore aviators and sworded sideburns and wore jeans whenever he could. Burke had also picked up the habit of smoking cigarettes, which seemed to match his whole getup. The two donned their waders and marched into the creek. Burke was really no better a fisherman than Dempsey, but he would always say he had learned a new technique from his father. Burke's father was in the local steamfitters union, and he was an omnipresent figure in Burke's life. From Little League games for Crispin to buying the occasional case of beer for Burke and winking at him and telling him not to tell his mother, his father was always there, and Burke idealized him in return. Burke would always have a new tale to tell of his father's days in the neighborhood in the 70s, drinking and causing hell, fighting for fun or honor, or just good old no-good mischief. However, through Burke's compulsory need to stop his father's antics, there was a vibrant spirit and intelligence. Although he would not admit it, it was not too long ago that Burke was winning math competitions and readathons at St. Jerome's and receiving a scholarship to Father Judge and being ranked in the top 20 of the school in GPA until drinking took more of a priority in his life and he slipped to 45 at the time of graduation. Even so, Burke was better than them all and it often baffled Dempsey that he would squander such gifts. Maybe Burke would figure it out in time and let them all have it. They cast out their lines and stood in the creek, waiting for a bite. After a while, they would both see large catfish wriggling past their feet. The fish got as close to the hooks to sniff the bait, a compound they purchased at Linden's Tackle Shop, but they just as soon swam away. They won't eat it. They never will, Burke concluded. They're after something else, Dempsey responded. Or they felt the hook before, and they don't want to feel it again. Sarah returned from Tweaksbury with her newborn son in her arms. He was named Thomas after his father, and the three would live in Limerick as Thomas Sr. oversaw repairing Core Castle. 
Pockets of rebellion still existed in these days, with a surprise, bloody encounter still springing up, usually when it seemed that the island had finally reached a peace. Irish rebels would breach a castle wall at night or ambush a reconstruction unit, and Sarah would have to place young Thomas in the care of her maid and begin dressing wounds or plying soldiers with whiskey until their shrieks of pain subsided. This all needed to end at some point, but it never would. She at least admired Thomas's drive to forge his own path. While other soldiers complained about late or missing wages, Thomas remained diligent and reserved, choosing each word wisely and taking any opportunity that came his way. Thomas served under Colonel Sams, a zealot's zealot, who would almost put Cromwell to shame. Sands would rant and rave about the plague of the Irish, loud and unbridled, so anyone in the closest decimated town could hear, and most likely just stirred further rebel outbreaks. Sands was mad and treated his men even worse, but he was a skilled surveyor and visionary, seeing this land of rubble as a fresh palette for him to create his masterpiece. The groundwork of a British Protestant utopia under the rule of a collective body fronted by a strong, charismatic, yet pious leader, Cromwell, who would wipe the Catholic idolatry and decadence away and create a state of living devoted to one another in a collective sharing of masteries for one united purpose, to serve in Christ. As cantankerous as Sand seemed to be, his passion was at least laudable. He had construction always on his mind, with his love of building going beyond the stone and cement and T-squares of the earth but of what could be built in man. How he cherished seeing a bold, defiant young soldier fall into line after witnessing Sand's rough justice to insubordination, to that soldier then evolving from the mindless grunt and musket fodder to want to take part in this better version of the world. This soldier who realized that war was useless if it did not spur progress, for it always did. Beyond the death, it was competition. It was sport testing one's will against another man's in the toughest of conditions, leaving that conscious self-perseverance to think only of fighting. So the man beside you does not die. And if that man does not die, then your country does not die and the dream with it. As Thomas worked with Sands from sunup to sundown, Sarah would bathe young Thomas, walk the streets of Limerick, and even forged friendships with some of the locals. Soon she grew fond of the island, but resented the still ever-present threat of warfare. The British government was certainly not as fair and righteous as it believed itself to be. Enforcing law and justice would never change, but she despised how her Lord was so strictly defined. It ran counter to the words of Christ she read in the gospel. To her, it just reeked of the lust of power in men. Not only was it essential for men to establish dominion of the earth and one another, they also had to control their destination in the afterlife. So when a charismatic young preacher entered Limerick, she was prepared to listen as he spoke of her heart. His name was George Fox, and he spoke not of doctrine and penalties for disobedience, but simply of religion as a gathering of friends, treating each other with kindness and putting another's needs before your own. He did not finish his speech with a caveat, asking for a donation for the church and so on, but he simply told of their meeting place, a nondescript hall at the edge of town. She told Thomas of the speaker, and the two soon attended a meeting. The two were swept away by the speaker and his gathering of friends. Fox did not speak of decoration or sacrament or eternal salvation or anything of that kind. 
He just talked of tolerance, something that seemed desperately needed in a time of bloodshed and grief. This group of friends continued to grow and soon fell under the scrutiny of the Protestant government. Members were placed in jail or exiled to islands such as Barbados, and the resolve of the group did not waver. How could it, for they only spoke of peace? Eventually they came upon the name Quakers, and Sarah and Thomas were soon good friends with the former British Admiral's son, William Penn. Thank you for listening today. For our next episode, we will focus primarily on Connor Dempsey's father, Michael. We will see his personal history, but also explore the history of this section of the city as well. Appreciate all of your support and interest. Until next time.